Um, as Pat mentioned, I'm really excited to start a new series uh, that's called Search and Rescue. It's a huge part of our Vision 2010 initiative where we start to think more as a church about evangelism. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been around the church block so many times. I've been a Christian now for 25 years, and I've been in the church for about that long. And it's really easy, give me a head nod if you understand this, to kind of get complacent in the church, right? To come every Sunday, sing your wonderful songs, go to your Bible study, maybe serve now and then, you know, and, and give to God through, through your offerings and all these other things, and have your quiet times, do all the things that you do to grow in your faith, and forget that God has a huge agenda here on planet Earth that allowed you to become a Christian in the first place that he now has for all those around you. And it has everything to do with this idea of search and rescue. And so just to get us thinking about this idea of search and rescue, I'll explain more as we go along this morning. I want you to look up here on the screen right now, even before I pray, and let's try to turn our, our minds and hearts toward this idea of finding and seeking lost people, okay? Look up here on the screen. Richie never gave up on me. He never gave up on me. Father, if I don't miss my guess, there is not one of us here this morning that cannot relate to this idea of uh, trying to find something or someone that we've lost. It's such a simple word picture, Lord, in a fallen world to have something that we value, whether it's another person or an animal or a material object, and somehow it's gone. And so, Lord, we put up flyers, we put out advertisements, we uh, network within our neighborhood. We, we do all we can, God, to find that which is lost. And so, Father, I pray that you would take that, that simple word picture, this idea of, of lostness and trying to find that which is lost, and burn it into our hearts and minds today. And, Lord, more than anything, help us to link this idea of lostness and of seeking and finding to your heart for lost people in this world. And so, Lord, if you do that today, we know that we can get on board with what you're about on planet Earth here. We know that we can start to grab a little bit of your heart and mind for why you sent Jesus and why it's so important as followers of Jesus that we understand the mission and the calling that you've given us. And so, God, help us to do that here this morning, we pray. Bless our time in your word. May you speak to our hearts and minds. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I know is true about you and me is that all of us love a good search and rescue story, don't we? I mean, all of us love it. 
I, I know this is going to date me a little bit, but you all remember way back in the 1980s when little Jessica McClure, that 18-month-old toddler, got stuck in that 8-inch well pipe down in Texas? Do you all remember that? I mean, it made national news. A little girl who was just out exploring and trying to find her way sees this little 8-inch pipe and starts to climb down it. Before you know it, she's stuck and it took them 57 hours to get her out and finally free her. And when they did, the whole nation is cheering. Or how about stories from the World Trade Center bombing where people remained alive under the rubble for days only to be found by rescue workers? I mean, it just does something to the human heart. Or how about when you're watching movies like Titanic, that's actually a pretty good movie, or The Perfect Storm, where there's rescue scenes, that even amidst all the horrible tragedy, people are getting rescued and found. I mean, you leave a movie like that kind of buoyed in your spirit. Why? Because you and I all know that it does something for the human spirit to see somebody lost in this fallen world only to be found. And if you can relate to this at all this morning, and you can, you're in good company, because this idea of search and rescue, and even enjoying and reveling in a good search and rescue story, is also something, as I've already mentioned here, that God is very much about. It's true. In fact, one of the things that I want to convince all of you over the next few weeks is that at the heart of who God is and at the core of his mission for this world is this idea of search and rescue. I mean, folks, if you're not convinced, just a cursory look at some of the words that Jesus used when he walked this earth, convince us of this. Jesus used words like lost and seek and find and save all the time in his teachings and his stories. In fact, it was very much a part of his vocabulary and worldview. And so what I want us to do here at Scottsdale Bible over the next few weeks as we kind of get our spiritual and relational bearings for 2009 is explore this idea of God being about search and rescue. Because make no mistake, folks, God in heaven thinks and feels constantly in terms of this the idea before us of search and rescue. It's absolutely core to his mindset and agenda for this world. And so even if some of you are tempted to tune out over the next few weeks by saying, well, Jamie, guess what? I'm already found. I mean, I don't consider myself lost. Guess what? You probably have people around you in your life right now that I don't think are as found as you are. And they're lost, the Bible says. And somehow you and I have to start to get God's heart and his mind when it comes to this idea of lostness and what he's about when it comes to search and rescue. And though there are many parts of the Bible that talk about God's search and rescue efforts, there's one particular chapter in the New Testament in which Jesus pulls out all stops. I mean, for an entire chapter, Jesus commits his teaching to this idea of lostness and foundness and what God wants to do when it comes to search and rescue. And so if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, we're not just going to park here for the rest of today. We're going to park in front of Luke 15 for the next three Sundays. I mean, we're going to explore three different stories, fictitious stories, but truth-bearing stories that Jesus told us that have everything to do with this idea of search and rescue, and as you're going to see, even what our role is in it, okay? Now, before we dive in and look at the first story, we got to get the setting and the context right. Do we all understand that? 
In other words, many Christians today sort of just open the Bible and read it and see what God's going to say to them. Well, the reality is, is that you've got to be careful reading the Bible that way. That you've got to understand the context or the setting of any particular story or any particular thing that the Bible says. And so let's look at the first two verses of Luke 15 because it's going to tell us the setting or context here, which is going to be very instructive for us today and over the next couple of weeks. Fascinating setting. Listen to what it says. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him, meaning Jesus, to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now pause there. This is a remarkable and quite frankly surprising scenario to the first century readers when they first were reading this. Notice that it begins by saying that tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Now folks, you need to know that tax collectors back then were like massively despised. They were dishonest people, greedy, manipulative, and hated by most everybody. And the reason is, is because they had a very brutal tax system back then during the Roman government that made our tax system today look enviable, made our tax system today look wonderful. You see, back then, in addition to a land and a living tax, a property and income tax, the Roman government also collected taxes of all other types. They collected toll taxes and custom taxes and duty taxes. I mean, they were just like tax fanatics back then. And instead of collecting all the taxes themselves, what the Roman government would do was sort of subcontract the collecting of these taxes to shady tax collectors who would collect the amount that the government demanded, plus they could then add on their own amount, kind of a fee for collecting these taxes, as much as they wanted with the full authority of the Roman government behind them. And so as you can imagine, this kind of system was ripe for abuse, and these guys were kind of on par with loan sharks today, and yet it was all legal. And so they extracted these exorbitant fees, these tax collectors, from the people back then, in addition to already the heavy taxes they were paying, and because of this, most people hated them. Tax collectors were despised back then, and Jesus is hanging out with them. In this scene right here, he's hanging out with tax collectors. And when it also says that he's hanging out with sinners, please simply know that this simply refers to those who were not religious back then. That's what Luke is trying to tell us. These were the non-churchgoers of Jesus' day. Those who didn't care about institutional religion, who didn't attend Bible study, who didn't give money, they didn't pray, they didn't serve in soup kitchens. I mean, these were like the spiritually disenfranchised of Jesus' day. And Jesus was hanging out with these people as well. And so when the religious leaders of Jesus' day saw all this happening, Jesus hanging around with tax collectors and sinners, they were ticked. It says that they grumbled and commented that Jesus is obviously receiving these people and eating with them, which was an indication in that culture that he liked them and that he liked being with them. I kind of love how one commentator on the Bible says this. This is great. He said, and I quote, Jesus was behaving as if these people were his own kin. And it's true. I mean, he's behaving as he likes these people, as if somehow he wanted to be with them. And so when this whole scenario is going on here, where Jesus is hanging around with tax collectors and sinners, and the religious elite of his day are getting all ticked and upset about this, it's right in this setting where you don't want to miss that Jesus decides to tell them three stories. 
three parables, which are fictitious stories that carry a true point to it, to help them understand what he was up to by hanging around with tax collectors and sinners, and also what God was up to, God the Father, in the midst of this fallen world of ours. And so let's read Jesus' first story to us today, and then we're going to explore the other two in the weeks ahead. Look at verses 3 through 6, Jesus' first story to help us make sense of why he'd be hanging around these people he was hanging around. It says, And he, Jesus, told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he founds it? Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. In our time remaining, folks, three things that you don't want to miss that Jesus is telling us here about God and this world. Three things that have everything to do with you, me, and those around us. First, notice that Jesus tells us here that something of great value is lost, right? That's the first thing he makes clear in this story, that something of great value is lost. He says there in verse 4a, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them? Focus on that little phrase, a hundred sheep and losing one of them. And folks, one of the first things that you need to understand is that that's very different than today's world in which when you have a pet, you know, everybody's kind of got a pet today. No, no, no. That's not what they're talking about back then. What they're talking about back then is that this is this man's livelihood. That was a time and place in which having animals was not a convenience, but necessary to one's livelihood. In other words, we need to realize that when Jesus tells us this story here of a man with a hundred sheep, he's not talking about a man that has a big pet store. He's talking about a man who, and this is his job, this is his livelihood. This is the way that he earns money. This is the way he survives. You see, back then, every family had anywhere between 5 and 15 animals just to stay alive, right? It was an agricultural culture. So they had animals for milk and to plow fields and for meat. And yet when it says that somebody here owns 100 sheep, that meant that he was a full-time shepherd. And that each one of these sheep represented an investment that would someday bring a return in order for him to provide for his family. In other words, please notice that each one of these sheep had immense value for this man. Everybody would have picked up on that when Jesus first started telling the story. And notice further that Jesus makes it clear that these are the shepherd's sheep, right? He's not watching them for somebody else. No, these are his sheep, and they are valuable to him. And when Jesus said that he lost one of them, from what we know of sheep, it probably doesn't mean that he actually lost them. What it means is that the sheep actually strayed away. Sheep, as we know, are fearful and secure and can tend to stray, and so it makes sense that this particular sheep wandered from the fold and got lost, one out of a hundred. So let's put all this together, folks. Here's what we know that Jesus is trying to tell us in this parable here. The shepherd of the sheep here is obviously God. Jesus is going to make that crystal clear in verse 7 when he tells us that the shepherd here represents God the Father. And we also know that the lost sheep here almost surely represents humanity or at least a portion of humanity, right? I mean, scholars have debated for 2,000 years, kind of bickering back and forth as to exactly what this lost sheep represents. Some people say that, you know, the 99 represent Israel and the lost sheep represents the Gentiles that are grafted in. 
kind of the, reform, the reformers. Calvin and Luther saw the, the lost sheep there representing the elect that would eventually be brought in. I mean, there's been different interpretations as to what this lost sheep represents, but the one thing, interestingly, that they all agree upon, don't miss this, is that the lost sheep here at the very least represents those who have not been found by God yet through coming into a vital, life-giving relationship with Christ. In other words, this lost sheep represents those who are not yet followers of God, the great shepherd, and have been brought into, their fo- into the fold. They are lost. And that's the whole point, folks, of these first few words of this story, that something is lost. And not just any something, but something of immense and great value. It's a man's sheep, essential to his livelihood, known by name, missed when not there. And now this sheep is going to become the focus of the whole rest of the story. And so please realize, if nothing else, by implication here, and I mean profound implication, what Jesus is trying to communicate is that you and your neighbor on both sides and all your co-workers and everyone in your family, even the aunts and uncles that you don't like, and all of your service providers and clients and customers that you know, even the ones that drive you nuts, all of them matter to God. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to us here. That just as just one out of a hundred sheep in a culture that had millions of them mattered to that one shepherd that lost that sheep, that whenever any of God's kids are lost, whenever any of his creation, those that he loves and is made in his image, are not in vital relationship with him, that matters to him. Why? Because you and I matter to God. We're all made in the image of God, known by name. Jesus said the very hairs of our head are numbered. We have great value in the eyes of God. And all I can tell you is that what's so cool about this truth here today is that all of us know what it's like to be valued, right? I mean, I don't care how rough of a family you came out of, all of us here have had times in our lives where through a friend or a loved one or an aunt, an uncle, a a parent, a spouse, where we know what it's like to be valued in relationship, for somebody to care about us. Even if we're down right now and feel like nobody cares, we know we've had experiences where you know what it's like to be valued by another person. And so here's the point. Think about times that you have been most valued by others in this world. Multiply it by about a trillion times, and now you're just one one-hundredth closer to understanding how much God values you and values finding you if and when you're lost. That's one of the things Jesus is making clear here, is that humanity values to God, matters to God just as one sheep whose loss matters to a shepherd. And so something of great value is lost. And once you get this, then you're ready to understand the second thing that Jesus is communicating in this story. You ready for this? And that is that there then becomes an all-out search for what is lost. I love it. There's an all-out search for what is lost. Look at how the story continues in verse 4. Jesus says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, now get this, does not leave the ninety-nine in open pasture, go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Focus on three words and you'll get the second point. Leave, go, and find. Could Jesus be more clear? Leave, go, and find. The shepherd leaves the 99, though he leaves them in open pasture, with most commentators point out probably means safe pasture because they're out in the open, protected from, from all the wolves that would be in the forest and things like that. But he leaves the 99 nonetheless. 
And then it says that he goes after the one. Do you see that there? He goes. A definite foreshadow of Jesus' almost final words in Matthew 28 to the disciples when he's going to tell them to go into all the world and make disciples. The shepherd goes after the lost sheep. And then most surprising and amazing in Jesus' first century culture, don't miss that it says he does not stop this all-out search until he finds the sheep. Until he finds them. I mean, just like we saw in our video where that guy wasn't going to stop putting up posters until he found his friend. Jesus is saying this shepherd's not going to stop until he finds that lost sheep. It's kind of reminiscent of what the prophet Hanani said to King Asa a thousand years earlier. When he said in 2 Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. I love it. The eyes of the Lord moving to and fro throughout the earth, looking for those who would respond to his grace. That's the agenda and business of God, folks. And so more than anything else, please see this. That this story is beginning to give us a glimpse of the amazing heart attitude of God toward a fallen world. The fact that God has such a heart for every lost person in this world, and I mean everyone, so much so that he is on an all-out search for any lost people that, as we're going to see in a minute, would turn to him, repent of their sins, and trust in Christ for eternal life. As Peter would go on to say it in his second letter, that he is patient toward you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Please see, that's God's heart and mind toward you and all those around you. He values lost people so much that when they're lost and without them, he's bent on finding them at all costs. An all-out search is ensuing. It's one of God's main agendas on planet Earth. And folks, we need to catch this today if we're ever going to understand God's heart for those around us. A few years ago, I was at a conference, and I heard a... Um, a speaker give a story that I'll, I'll never forget. It's a story I think that all of us can relate to. The speaker was talking about how one day he came home from his church. He was a pastor, and um, he went, as we all do, to the mailbox and got the mail, and he was walking through the garage, and he said that what he usually did every day is that he'd stop by the trash can and sort the mail. And so picture this pastor there stopping by the trash can in his garage, and, and as he made the joke, he said, you know, I'd sort through all like the catalogs that my wife and teenage daughter didn't need to be tempted by, and I'd throw them in the, uh, the trash can, and he said, and I'd put the bills over here, and I'd just be sorting the mail. And he said at one point, he got one of those, those cards that we all get in the mail, give me another click here, guys, that all of us are familiar, one of those cards that has a picture of a runaway or, or abandoned child that says, have you seen me? All of you have seen that, right? Have you seen me? And he said he took that card, like all of us do, and he sort of just threw it in the trash can there. And just for a moment, he watched that card float down and, and fall on top of the, the magazines and the pile of mail that he already had there in the trash can. And all of a sudden, it hit him. What if that was my kid? I mean, like, I see these things, he said, all the time, and I'm so callous to them. But what if that was my kid on that, that, that was lost right there? He, he told the story that when he asked himself, what if that was his kid, he thought to himself, you know, there'd not be enough trees to make enough paper to make enough flyers for me to find my missing kid. In fact, he thought if this was one of my kids, he thought I would take a leave from work and spend every waking moment, every ounce of energy, utilizing every resource at hand, all my money, my time, my friends, my business contacts. He said, I'd do anything and everything, and I wouldn't stop until I found my missing child. He thought that would be the response if that was my kid. I've just become callous to it because it's not my kid. 
And he looked at all of us and he said, that'd probably be your response too. And one of the reasons the pastor told that story is he said, because he said, I think that's the way God is thinking and that that's the way Jesus is trying to communicate to us here in Luke chapter 15. That God has a lot of missing kids. I mean, I don't even care this morning, folks, what your theology is. I mean, if you're a Calvinist, it just simply means the elect. If you're more of an Arminian, it means all of humanity. The reality is, no matter how you slice it, there's a lot of missing kids out there today when it comes to God's economy. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family members. I mean, people that have not yet come to faith in Christ, as Billy Graham says, they've not yet found peace with God. And God, what you need to see is on an all-out mission, a search and rescue mission to find his missing kids. And kind of like you and I would do if it was our own kid, he's going to pull out all the stops, all the resources to bring them back in to his kingdom. I mean, don't miss this, folks. This is God's heart toward you and every person you rub shoulders with each and every day. It is. It's his heart toward them. He sees them as lost, and he wants them to come back into the fold. And he's never going to give up. His search will never end until either eternity is ushered in or until the lost ones that he has chosen are in his fold. In fact, God is so bent on this, is so much the core of his plan and activity for our world, that notice with me how this story ends. This is the third thing we need to notice here. And that is that there is a huge celebration when what is lost is found. There's a huge celebration when what is lost is found. So add all this up. Something of great value is lost, just a sheep. When that sheep is lost, there's an all-out search for that sheep. But then in a way that had to surprise Jesus' initial hearers of the story, you'll see what I mean by this in a minute, there's this huge celebration for this sheep that is now found. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, and when he had found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, now this is weird, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Now, folks, this had to blow Jesus' hearers away when they first heard this. I mean, you got this shepherd who lost one out of a hundred sheep. Kind of a tragic thing, but was already seen. There's great value attached to this sheep, and so he loses it. And then when he finally finds it, finds it through this all-out search, he puts it on his shoulders. I mean, doesn't even like whack it back. He just puts it on his shoulders. And then it says he took him home. Not to the open pasture where all the other sheep were, but took him to his actual home. Kind of pampers the sheep because he's so excited he lost his sheep. And then in a way that had to blow everybody away that's hearing this story originally, he calls his friends and his neighbors together, like invites them over for a party to celebrate the finding of this lost sheep. And let's be realistic. you got to believe that the neighbors would have been saying, like, what's the big deal here? Like, big whip. You found your lost sheep. We got lots of sheep. I've lost some too, but I don't go throwing a party for this lost sheep. I mean, they had to have been thinking that back then. What's the big deal about finding one lost sheep? And that's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to get across here, folks. That given the level of lostness and given the value attached that so many people don't realize, and given that an all-out search has ensued that so many were not even aware of, and given the fact that what was lost is now found and has been brought home, it's the most incredible news to ever hit humankind. And it's definitely worth shouting about, telling others about, and celebrating like the Cardinals just won the Super Bowl. I mean, that's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. 
He's trying to tell us that, yeah, as insane as it might sound, that a shepherd would get that fired up about a lost sheep being found, God the Father gets that fired up about a lost person that finds Christ. That's what he's trying to tell you and me, that it is a big deal. It's a huge deal when a lost person finally finds hope, finally finds peace, finally finds the the Savior that you and I know that it's not a small deal, it's a huge deal. And that though there might be six billion people on planet Earth right now, everyone matters. And everyone that chooses Christ rejoices or causes all of heaven to rejoice. In fact, I'll really blow your mind here, folks. Matthew, in his retelling of the story, adds something that Luke doesn't add here. And that is that the shepherd actually rejoiced more over the one that was found than over the 99 that were not lost. Look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 13. This had to have blown them away back then. Jesus says, and it turns out, that if he finds it, truly I say to you, and I get this, that he rejoices over it more than over the 99 who had not gone astray. Now that adds some meaning to this story. I mean, that now all of a sudden changes everything in here. Because up to this point, we're saying, okay, I get it. Lost sheep matter. All-out search, good thing. Even celebrating when you now bring it back to the 99. But then when Jesus says, oh, and by the way, they rejoice even more over this lost sheep now that had come home, over the 99 that had not gone astray, all of a sudden now we go, well, what does that mean then today for me and you and for how God thinks about us and church and lost people and Scottsdale and society out there? Here's what it means, folks. It means that God gets more excited over a lost person coming to him in faith and trust through Christ than he does about you making it to church every Sunday. Think about that. I mean, some of us feel really good about coming to church every Sunday. We go, oh, I did great. God must be so proud. I'm here. In fact, I'm here three out of four Sundays. I mean, I could be sleeping and watching Big Valley or something like that, but no, I'm in church. And God must be so proud. Well, God is glad you're here, but guess what? He, he, He rejoices more over a lost person that comes to faith and he does you showing up at church every Sunday. He rejoices more over you finally joining a small group or a Bible study. He rejoices more over you finally discovering your gifts and serving him. Get this, he rejoices more over a lost person coming to faith than you raising good kids, holding down a good job, being responsible in your life and marriage. He does. He even rejoices more over a lost person coming to faith than you getting victory over that nagging sin that has stayed with you for so long that you've finally been released from. I mean, think about it. Anything that the 99 do, though all good and pleasing to God, it can't light a candle to the joy factor that God celebrates over when a lost person is finally found. That's what Jesus is telling us here. And don't get me wrong. It's not that God doesn't get fired up and excited about all the wonderful things that you and I do to grow in our faith. Of course he does. God's very happy that you come to church. He's happy that you study his word. He's happy that you use your gifts to serve him. He's happy that you repent of your sins and grow and get nurtured in your faith. He's happy that you're responsible and that you love your family and raise good kids and hold down a good job. He's happy about all those things. It's just that what Jesus is trying to make clear here is that because God's main agenda is to bring lost people back into the fold, that each and every time this happens through one individual life, nothing can rate higher on God's joy meter than that. Please see that. And so here's the whole point of Jesus' story, folks. Here's what he's trying to communicate to his mixed audience back then and now. 
And it's simply this. Look up here on the screen. And that's, this is how God thinks and feels about this world. And so what do you feel? That's what I want to leave you with here this morning. I mean, this is how God feels about this world around us and all the lost people. And the simple question you and I need to wrestle with is do we share God's feelings? <laughs> do we share his hard attitude toward lost people around us? I mean, go back to what we started with in the beginning. That's exactly what Jesus was trying to get at, right? You got these Pharisees and these Sadducees, all the church-going people that are just thinking they're doing just fine. You got the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is hanging out with the latter. The former are now ticked, so he tells them a story. And the story, as we've just seen, talks about something of great value that's lost, and then an all-out search, and then a huge celebration when lost people are found. And what's Jesus doing? He's equating it to the tax collectors and the sinners. He's saying, look, the reason I'm hanging out with these people is because you people are already found. And you don't even realize how placid and dead you are in your spirit. Jesus was going to go on to call them whitewashed tombs. He's saying, I'm hanging around with these people because they got life. They at least know that they're sinners. They know that they have a need for a Savior. And guess what? Many of them are going to be found. Matthew's going to stop collecting taxes and become a disciple. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Kevin gets so fired up over this. This is God's heart. Is it your heart? That's what he's asking us. That's the question implied there at the end of verse 7 before Jesus moves on to the next story. Where's your heart? Are you a Pharisee and a scribe? Just content to sit in church and do your church thing? Or are you a tax collector and a sinner? Or were you one? Knowing that you've been saved, knowing that he loves you, knowing that he wants you now to be a part of his mission on planet Earth. So what do we do with this? Well, in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to help us learn what to do with this. Today's message is simply called Joining the Rescue Efforts, but over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about what we can do once we get a part of the rescue efforts. But I'd ask you just to do three things, three application points as we wrap up here this morning, three things to kind of chew on as you go out of here this morning. First, I just challenge you to ask yourself if indeed you have God's heart and your mind here, and if you don't, if you're just callous to this, just be honest with yourself, because I've been callous to this before, um, ask God to break you and to give you his heart and mind here. And when you ask him that, duck. All right? Just duck. Because he'll do it. I, I can remember my very first church when I heard my senior pastor preach on this idea of evangelism and God's heart for lost people. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, I've been in seminary for the last three years and I've gotten kind of placid in my faith. And I said to Kevin, Kevin, I, I, I just don't think I have a heart anymore for lost people. I'm just being honest with you. I've kind of got involved in churchianity and I'm not sure where my heart is anymore. I'll never forget his answer to me. He looked at me and said, well, then I'm going to pray for you, and I want you to pray. And he said, and when you pray, duck, because God is going to break your heart for lost people. And he did. And he did. And now when I find myself getting a little bit stale, I just, I just hit my knees and say, God, give me your heart. Give me your heart. And God always does something, brings someone in my life or does something in my life to break me and to give me his heart for lost people. That's the first thing I'd ask you to do. Second thing I'd ask you to do is to begin living each day, viewing those around you through the lens of lost and found. Can you do that? Again, in America, we tend to just view everybody, I don't know, kind of the same. That's a good thing. I mean, we don't want to be more holier than thou or, quote, better than other people. But the reality is, is that the Bible clearly says there are only two categories of those that all eternity is going to hinge on, and that's lost and found, right? Th those that, that have not found God through Christ yet and those that have. And so part of, of us starting to get God's heart in mind is starting to start to see people as they are, 
I mean, don't get mad at them when they get in your face. That's not going to help. Have compassion. Start to say, wow, I remember how I was when I was lost. Maybe that person is, is, is feeling like I was when I was lost. Maybe they, they need my prayers. And then that leads to the third thing, and we're going to help you with this in the coming weeks. But begin to reach out sensitively to those around you. Now, look for opportunities to maybe share your faith with those who are interested. And I love how the Bible says it elsewhere when it says, always be prepared. It says that in First Peter to give a, a, a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. And so maybe some of you this week can just look for opportunities to share your faith with those who, who might be interested. Maybe even just look for an opportunity to invite somebody to some type of an event, maybe the FBR event that we're doing tomorrow night uh, to do an outreach. Or we're bringing Josh McDowell in here in May with his son. And our church does lots of, gives people lots of opportunities to reach out to those. Maybe just start to put your antennas up, looking for opportunities for you to reach out to those around you. And I think if we do those three things, folks, we're going to get well on our way started to this idea of search and rescue. Just ask God to break your heart, to give you his heart for lost people, the heart that we see in the story with the sheep. And, and then as you do that, um, start to, to see people around you in terms of lostness and foundness. And, and then thirdly, start to maybe even ask God what he would have you do to just reach out to those in love, in faith, that need a Savior. I can't tell you how excited I am for this series. I'm praying that as God leads us, that literally he would revolutionize our church. And that as I've said before, that as we continue to grow, because we're a growing church definitely, we'd grow by finding those lost sheep and allowing God through us to bring them back into his fold. Why don't you bow with me and pray. Father, as you know, um, churches in America have struggled over the last whole quarter of a century with uh, this idea of, of being churches that really reach out in love and faith to those who are lost. And Lord, we trade a lot of sheep in the church today. Somebody doesn't like the church down the corner, so they come to our church and they move to another area and come to a different church, and that's all good and fine. But the reality is, Lord, as we are starting to see here in Luke 15, and as we see throughout the scriptures, um, you very much call us, God, to be about your mission, uh, to be about your agenda, which is reaching out to the lost sheep those that have wandered from the fold and need to be brought back. So, Father, I pray that as we catch just a glimpse of your heart and your mind today, that, uh, Lord, indeed, you would fire us up as a church, help us to be broken before you, and, uh, Lord, help us in that brokenness to realize how much you want our hearts to align with your heart when it comes to those around us. Father, not all of us are, are many evangelists. I know some of us are thinking that here this morning. That, that's fair. That's true. But Lord, you've called all of us to do our part, whether it's through hospitality or mercy or through helps or through giving or through teaching, all the different gifts you've given us that we can use to bear upon reaching out to those who need a Savior. Help us to do our part, God. Help us to start by having your heart. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.